This is Daniel Fagella. You're listening to the AI in Business podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about leveling up software tools with AI capabilities. We recorded an episode some 45 days ago with Matt Berseth, who is one of the co-founders and the CIO of NLP Logics, an AI services firm, about the topic of, and we talked about one of my favorite analogies, pizza versus lasagna. What does it mean to go from AI playing at the surface to AI becoming part of a software solution, AI becoming part of what delivers its core value and allows it to be useful for the customer and also drive value for the business that has constructed it. In this episode, we bring Matt back on and we dive into examples of just that happening in the real world. We talk about the public sector and the private sector and where existing software solutions, maybe it was a dashboard, a customer app of some kind, have been able to be leveled up in terms of what they can deliver for value to the end user who would be the customer and how they've been able to drive more value for the business or the organization. In this case, again, we have government organizations here as well that is actually leveraging it. So a lot of hands-on experience from Matt has made its way into this episode, and it's pretty much a natural extension from the one that we had recorded some 45 days back. I always like examples. I like real case studies. I like named customers. I like knowing exactly where and how AI made a difference because I think no matter what industry you're in, understanding that expanding capability space is helpful. And for that reason, I was pretty darn satisfied with this episode. This episode is brought to you by NLP Logics. If you're interested in learning more about reaching Emerge's global audience, feel free to stick around to the outro of this episode. But without further ado, let's get into the meat and potatoes here. This is Matt Berseth of NLP Logics here on the AI and Business Podcast. So Matt, welcome back to the program. Yeah, thanks for having me back. Last time we got to chat about one of our most fun analogies on the show, the pizza versus lasagna analogy of AI products and how eventually AI is making its way deeper and deeper into really the bedrock of products as opposed to playing on the surface. Making this tangible is really our goal today. You guys have done a, a ton of work on various IT projects that have become more AI enabled. And we've got a few to go through. The first one is computer vision oriented, which I thought sounded cool. I'd love to start off with what was this project? What problem was it trying to solve? And then we'll get into kind of how it got leveled up. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, so the, the problem with this client is that they were trying to do image processing at, at large scale and large scale in terms of the volume of images, as well as the types of detections and metadata they were looking to capture from the images. They had an existing team and an existing architecture, and it was part of their bigger enterprise application. And they were struggling with getting algorithms developed, accepted, approved, and deployed, and as well as maintained. So at every one of those checkpoints or milestones, they were kind of getting held up. And so they were looking for some help with some AI architecture, as well as some streamlining of processes and getting them back to where they could scale the algorithms across their business. Yeah. And you mentioned a lot of different phases where help was necessary here. And obviously building out these projects and, and products is, is somewhat of a robust and complex process. What were the first ones that you had to work on untangling with that many places to start? I mean, it sounds like he's got a dozen places you could begin. What the heck do you do in that situation? Yeah, good point. I, I would say with us, and I was just discussing this with a, with a coworker this morning, and that is a lot of their problems we suspected started with the data. So that's usually where we start. 
is let's let an image problems are great for this. Let's get eyes on the data, make sure that the labels are what we think they are. They had outsourced some of the labeling exercise, which is great. But if you don't have a good process around capturing the labels and auditing and verifying them, then, you know, it's a, it's, you know, if there's anything true about AIML, it's, it's the classic garbage in, garbage out type oh, yeah. of problem. So we, we started there and then just kind of methodically worked our way up of, you know, accept it in the lab, build them inferencing architecture that would meet their applications needs, and then get going with, with pipelining the models and getting, getting them, you know, getting them built out in a reliable timeline. And so did you have to, you know, just, I guess we'll talk about data tools, et cetera, here, just to try to paint a bit of a mental image of this example. When it comes to the data, certainly the labeling and enrichment ecosystem is a very robust and important part of, of AI. I mean, everybody from the Appens and iMerits and whatnot have, have been on the show. Did they, but of course, in any case, we need really tight guidance around how exactly are we labeling what and what is criteria for success? What are maybe acceptable levels of error or not acceptable levels of human error? Who's actually checking in on that? It sounds like maybe those protocols weren't in place and you guys had to come in from kind of a protocol process standpoint so that these these labeling teams could actually deliver something quality? Is Was that kind of a step one here, if I'm hearing you correctly? Uh, definitely. That that was that was a step one. You know, maybe step zero was just kind of assess what they had because they had spent quite a bit of time and money labeling their data, but, but they hadn't really put eyes on it. And so, yeah, so assessing the quality of what they were labeling, identifying the inconsistencies, and then putting together kind of the, a labeling book that gives the instruction. This was kind of a nuanced use case. It didn't, I, I would say, it didn't require an expert to label and identify what they were looking to find, yeah. but there was some nuance to it. It, it. it did require a little bit of guidance and some training. And so we helped them hone in on that and build in a little bit of an audit process. And then that, you know, a little bit of momentum with building a successful model fairly quickly, given that data kind of showed them that that we were off to the right place and, and we could scale that approach. Got it. So they they knew what they wanted. Maybe it wasn't the most complicated labeling. It's not like they needed PhDs and, you know, thoracic surgery in order to label medical images or something. It sounds like it was somewhat mechanical, turkable, maybe a little bit more complicated and not to oversimplify. But even then, unless you've worked with data before, unless you know how to set these pipelines up, unless you know what quality control for this kind of training and labeling actually looks like, you can end up with a lot of garbage. So you had to you had to do the cleanup on that part of the workflow. Yes. Okay. Yes, exactly. And then from there, was there also an overhaul of, you know, I think about what the next steps are in terms of what needed to be changed here. Was there the AI platform they were using kind of needed to be altered or kind of where they're doing their processing, whether in AWS or what have you, like what else did you have to adjust once you got yourself some decent data? Like you said, you had to go through the rest of the whole process where they were also hitting hurdles. What was next there? Yeah, I would say they had a very rigid architecture as far as you know, take an image, give it to a model, get a result back. And they did not allow much flexibility in the image processing pipeline. They had kind of, they had kind of assumed, you know, load the weights, shove the image through and get the results and off you go. And they had, you know, there was no mechanism to take advantage of any domain specific pre-processing or post-processing. And you know, in our experience, 
there's a lot of value that can be had from taking advantage of things that you understand about the domain. And so their their whole architecture was just, you know, image, model, result, and all that flowed. And we kind of introduced a little bit of an abstraction as far as containerizing some of the inferencing pieces and allowing hooks, if you will, to fire different pre- or post-processing types of rules or to chain different algorithms, models together if need be. Got it. It sounds like what you're saying roughly here from picking up what you're putting down, often the rich, robust context that we as a business have around the data, it's it's not literally like, yeah, well, once the folks out in some foreign country know how to label it, it's definitely always fantastic. It's like, well, sometimes you actually want to see a certain amount of it. Was there a stopgap added around, let's validate, check some of these things ourselves, maybe like a, a quality assurance point where people could add additional labels or adjust some of the information before it was actually fed into to start training the algorithm or what was kind of tacked in there? Uh, well, we did actually something very similar, but you know, we did it on the inference side. So our stopgap was if we you know, in certain cases, go ahead, send the images out to get a manual review or put it in a in a human in the loop kind of a scenario to get human eyes on it if required for a you know a low percent of the volume that required yeah. it. Which, you know, for us, I feel like that's it's the things like that add the value that when you when you can do things like that, you can go from you know, it's in the lab, it's almost ready, it's not quite there to more, you know, build that ecosystem where you're not making incorrect predictions, the user is still getting the accuracy they need. And then you're collecting even better data, you're, you're kind of getting some annotations, some hints, you're collecting even better data as you go, it's more of an alive system. Yep, I would imagine literally anybody who's labeling data at scale has some quality assurance checkpoint percentage, you know, quality control stuff that they have to do in order to make it alive. Because I imagine the opportunity for drift and the opportunity for things to go wonky goes way up when nobody's doing that kind of check-in. So there was a lot of work on that data front and then how that stuff is routed. At the end of the day, for kind of a last question on this first example, what was your relationship, I guess, with the existing team? Clearly, they were working on this and they couldn't have finished all of it on their own. They had to you know, pull you guys in and get some extra help and some, some expert guidance. What was the collaboration like, I guess, on that kind of a project? It was a tricky one. This specific one was tricky. <laughs> okay. Not many of the of the prior team survived even the very earliest days. The management survived, but a lot of the folks on the ground didn't make it through that very first phase. So from a from a team collaboration, it really wasn't a team collaborating. We, it was more of a replacement in the short term. And then how can we rebuild it once we got our success? Got it. So they trusted you guys to be kind of the new foundation and then they would build and assemble a team around a, a digital product that, you know, an AI enabled product that was actually working. Yeah, exactly. Okay, got yep. it. Cool. So, all right. Well, yeah, sometimes I imagine that's going to happen. Probably not the first team in the world to kick off a project that didn't work out and need to bring in some outside experts. So that's a good one. I know you've got two others to fly into. First one was computer vision. What is our second one? Yeah, the second one is a, it's an RPA robotic process automation project and it's honestly it's one of my one of my favorites as a company as a as a project that we've ever worked on because it has everything i think that makes sense from a from a data science project standpoint it's got all the hallmarks of success i feel like 
So, so the problem, the problem was yes. the licensing model for UiPath or an automation anywhere, it didn't quite meet the needs of this client. They needed to scale in ways that those licensing models wouldn't support. Okay. So that, that was the genesis of it. And, and you know, those are platforms, you know, those are, those sure. are very robust, very wide, deep in some areas, not deep in other areas. And our client needed to go really deep in an area that those two offerings weren't quite deep enough in. And the cost of doing it in those tools was just too, it just wasn't going to work. Yeah, they, they wouldn't be able to run the volume they had and have it economically make any sense at all from what it sounds like. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, our charter was not to replace those platforms because they, they are platforms, but to go really narrow and deep and to make sure we met the cost objectives and that we could, you know, scale as our business scales. So that was that was the problem. And again, the reasons why it's some of my favorite is one is we started really small and focused. You know, we started doing if it was, you know, it was under a hundred transactions a day of, you know, RPA processes that would go and collect data and, and package it into a single transaction. And are we are we to say, so you're using transaction in the representative sense as opposed to directly referring to commerce here? Yes. I'm, okay. I mean, like, you know, one workflow through the application. There we go. Cool, cool. Is, yeah. Just, just is, to be clear for the folks yeah. tuned in. Okay. That makes sense. So yeah. So you, you started yeah. small, you're saying hundred of these or whatever. Yep. hundred of those. And then we we scaled it up. And I think, you know, I think even something like this morning, I think we're getting close to 15,000 a day. And we are working to get to 80,000 a day is what is where our client wants to get to. So where did I guess the AI enablement of this, this kind of internal RPA type automation product sort of come in? What needed to be done to get that level up to go down in any context you can provide on the type of workflow would be helpful just to say RPA and the complete abstract mm-hmm. as a buzzword alone would be challenging to imagine. So anything you can give us for some amount of what the hell was being handled here? And then also, yeah, how it got leveled up because it sounds like it was pretty significant. Yeah. So the process was interacting with different healthcare systems. So going into healthcare systems and pulling out healthcare documents. And the reason why it was val- one of the reasons why it was valuable is because the humans were currently doing the clicks and the, and the capturing of the data. And so just having the bots or the RPA processes doing it was a big leveling up from a time saving standpoint. But secondly, is once all that data is pulled out, this is where I get really excited about how the data capture piece kind of feeds that next generation of AI capabilities. So now we have all this text data, just this unstructured mess. And the use case is to help add structure to the data and help people that are processing that data manually, help them work with the data, data and be faster and more effective. And so there was a number of predictive outputs that given that input, all those text documents that were collected about the patient, you know, we're able to go through those using, using language models and help predict or even suggest or recommend outcomes or predictive targets that a person who's reviewing the data can use to make decisions. Got it. Okay, cool. And 
obviously it's you know it's interesting to hear this use case in part because you know we've had the pega systems and uh, ui paths and whatnot of the world on the show and of course they're all aiming to level up in terms of higher degrees of automation which makes sense i mean it's natural right? it's not a surprise to anybody that they want their capabilities to be broader but obviously there's use cases that are sometimes so niche to our workflow we need to do this in this way that's going to be this and it's going to involve so many transactions that if we're paying for the way they're billing us nah we got to build this thing and so it sounds like yep. this is a case where did they in any way bootstrap it off of a core RPA platform or did they kind of build their own automation system writ large for this bespoke case? No, it was it was started with one of those other big platforms yep, sure. and then which again uh, makes a ton of sense, you know, use what you can until we realized the pricing wasn't going to work and then, you know, re-engineer it to to handle that next generation volume. Interesting. Yeah. I feel like the folks that are with, you know, those big RPA providers, all of, you know, again, many of whom I respect we've had on the show, they would think, okay, well, I got to pick which RPA provider can actually get this specific workflow done. But it's interesting to note, actually, one of the options is, well, you bootstrap with one of them and then you kind of build your own stuff and save yourself on some billing is, is actually an additional step that can go down here. So any important lessons learned from going from that RPA to automation step, anything else that you think might transfer to other digital product projects that you've done? Well, I, I would say this. I would say that lesson learned being, you know, when you're out there collecting even the 15,000 workflows a day for us, a percent of those fail. You know, if it's 5%, if it's 10%, if it's 2%, and it really is a system. So you have to have even automation around failures for retrying or remediation and have to have support tools to help understand how to troubleshoot. It is a, you know, it's, it's, it is a big platform and there's a lot of nuance to it. Cool. So yeah, interesting to hear that as an option, just especially based on the previous interviews we've had to think about that as an additional path that people could take in this case, based on their custom scenario. You've got a third example to walk us through as well. We've got computer vision, we've got RPA. What's our last stop in terms of looking under the hood at AI-enabled digital products? Yeah, so this one is another one that is, you know, even as I reflect on the last one, like, like you know, hey, competing with, with UiPath, not yeah. a great idea. You know, that's <laughs> but when you reach volumes and scale where it is all a business is doing it, you got to rethink some things. Yeah. So on the data capture path, I'd say we, we had a client that was looking to reduce their labor costs for data capture. They had an OCR piece of the platform that would take a first pass crack at the form. These were healthcare forms and it would OCR what it could. And then humans would do the correction entry. And this was, you know, I, I kind of laugh because a lot of people, I'm sure a lot of people even listen to this, think that OCR is like done and solved. We have, if we can do deep learning, how can we not solve OCR forever? People would be surprised. Anybody who's listened to this show, Matt, is well aware that it is not a solved problem. <laughs> yeah, <that's right. laughs> so it is, it is far from a solved problem. Yep. And, you know, and, and so in this use case, our client was, they, I think they had 300 operators on shore doing data entry, and they were looking to cut that in half. And, and to do that is, you know, you got to really rethink the technology. And so they partnered with us, and we built a custom 
it's going to sound again kind of wild like the yeah, RPA, yeah, but, yeah. But, but we had a we had this amazing advantage, which was we had access to literally unlimited label data because they'd been in business for years doing the same thing, keying you know the data, yeah. and so we built a really high end LSTM OCR model that was trained on years of historical claims and it had a real advantage because it was, you know, all the fonts and the nuance and the printing on top of lines and smudging and faxing and bending and then refaxing. We just had this wealth of really good, bad machine print text. (laughs) Really good, bad machine print text. Yes. That's the best way to put it. (laughs) Excellently terrible data that was labeled properly yeah <laughs> it re- but but it was labeled properly. yeah that's it that's what matters right that is what mattered and it was you know we we you know and i'm sure under the hood we use multiple ocr engines but this one custom trained engine is the one that gave us this enormous accuracy boost and it allowed our client to hit their operating goals as far as labor as it related to this use case yeah. So in, in this case, if I'm hearing you right, I mean, having had a great many, well, yeah. So for the audience to validate your point about how OCR is not solved, anytime mm-hmm. your data starts in the real world and then it enters a digital space, there will be challenges. I mean, I, I don't know when that problem writ large will go away. I mean, you know, sensors in the real world, scanning images in the real world, scanning documents in the real world. I mean, like you said, smudging, bending, the number of ways things can go wrong is is unlimited. So I'm sure quality is going to continue to improve, but it's it's a tough one. And so we talk to firms in this space. And of course, for the most part, what they want to be able to to say, and again, I respect all these companies, is they'll begin with a certain volume or amount of well-trained sort of general capability. And then they'll have to do a bunch of bespoke and unique training because, okay, we're looking at mortgage docs, we're looking at PDFs, we're looking at this kind of thing, this kind of thing, whatever it is. We, we, we've we got general capabilities for PDFs and printed docs. Maybe we've got some legal contracts we've done in the past. They've got categories that they've trained on. And then they're going to dial in and get more trained specifically on on the use case of the unique client. I imagine you guys were probably going head to head with many of those firms. And I would suspect that the way you'd win such a thing is that their workflow is so bespoke that maybe even these existing players, by layering some customization on top of their base tech, just wasn't able to get them to the quality that they they needed. That's what we suspect, you know, around here. I don't know if this is a great term or not, but we kind of call it, you know, last mile OCR, which is, you know, you you hit Azure or AWS or, you know, GCP and, you know, you get back results but then your problem starts because it's 80% accurate and okay, what 80% and how do you, you know, a lot of times what we find is 80% accurate means you might as well just key the whole thing because you're correcting is you know, correcting takes time. And so, yeah, we found, Hey, let's go, let's go really deep on some of these problems where the volume makes sense. If the volume doesn't make sense, yeah, it doesn't make sense, but where you have the volume, then I think it does make sense to really, you know, focus in and build those solutions for that specific problem. Yeah, yeah. And I think the ecosystem for AI products is definitely going to grow, but services is always going to grow too, because I think there's a certain point of bespokeness, right? Like we need to get five points better on accuracy with 
this little thing, or we need to address smudges better. If you're a vendor that's just trying to bill every year, and again, there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, it's kind of a decent business model. Many consultants admire that, to be honest. But if that's what you're trying to do, you can only white glove for so long, right? Until it's no longer your problem. And then there's Mm -hmm. companies who are like, obviously, you guys do a lot of very custom projects who will step in and tackle the crazy stuff and get it done. Mm -hmm. And so to be toe to toe with them, it has to be a situation where a little bit of tweaking isn't enough. Maybe it's it's really got to be a lot of customization. Yep, exactly. Cool. Okay, cool. So let's talk a little bit about, they had some existing OCR. You guys had to build out this new solution. What was the collaboration process like with their existing team? So you mentioned there was a lot of good, bad data. Great. I, I hope I get to talk about that again, Matt. That was awesome. So you had a lot of good, bad data and it was labeled properly. You know, on some level, that would surprise me if they weren't training an algo already in some way, because it would seem like maybe they wouldn't have always said like, oh, well, this smudge mark here actually means this. And like, they're not actually tying and labeling and appending everything the right way. But it sounds like they were. Yeah, yeah, they were. And if you think about it, because they're... The business problem was to digitize a form. And a form means, you, you know, you have a first name field, you have a date of birth field. And so they had to get the data at a, I think their SLA with their clients was, it was, I think it was two incorrect fields for every hundred forms. So that was, that was the quality bar that they had to achieve. And so that was the quality of the data that we basically had unlimited access to. And as far as the collaboration, again, you know, some of the things I really liked about this project was everybody understood the value of the data and we got to leverage them as a, you know, as part of the release process. They had a 1000 form test set that we never saw, you know, and, and we would hey, we got a you know quarterly update, here's the updates. And then they would run it through the, you know, the baseline test, which were a thousand forms that they had handpicked. I would, I would say maybe they weren't representative of exactly what they get day to day. They had a good mix of what they felt were important. And then that's how we kind of walked up the quality bar. And then they would report to us the, you know, field level accuracy to them was really important. So they would report to us the field level accuracy on segments of the data. So when when something went from 85 to 92% for this segment, they could relate that to, oh, this fewer headcount or this more, we get more efficient in this area because of that. It was really neat. Okay, cool. So it sounds like I'm going to nutshell this and make sure I have it all captured before we wrap up, but I want to get the the great lessons out of this example here. Again, a good a good example of when very bespoke hands-on ongoing training is is just going to be warranted compared to things relatively out of the box. They knew the value of the data and they had some good data stores, and they also knew that like maintaining that was was critical. They were willing to sort of collaborate over time and have benchmarks and they also knew how to tie what they were measuring to dollars. So they knew how to say, this progress matters. Not like, okay, better accuracy. I'm the boss here. I still don't know if I want to pay for this. They they had that set up. So strong collaboration cadence, a really strong existing value of data. And they knew what they were measuring mattered and they tied it to dollars. And it sounds like that allowed them to commit and really see these improvements. Yeah. 
Exactly. Yep. Well, those are things that I'm sure you hope every future client will come to you with. <laughs> oh, I was going to say, it's, it's, I mean, they're all great. But yes, of course. But one is so elusive. I got to yeah. say, you know, having that in concrete terms is really valuable. It's a beautiful thing. And it's, the, it's often the responsibility of the catalyst or the service provider like you guys to help come up with what is this needle move to dollars thing. Because of course, that's how you're going to get buy-in. It's how you're going to measure progress. But it sounds like they were a great part of already coming to the table with that. And that just makes your life easier. So if you're listening in, you you know not only how to work well with a service provider, you know three factors that no matter what kind of project you're doing are going to be damn well useful to leveling up and seeing seeing yourself through to some ROI. So Matt, I know that's all we had for time. I loved the quotes today. This was a lot of fun. Thank you again for joining us. Yes. Thank you for having me. It was, it was very enjoyable. So that's all for this episode of the AI and Business Podcast. A big thank you to you, our listener, for listening all the way through to the end of this episode. I appreciate you guys. We pay very close attention to listen-through rates, just so everybody knows. So it means a lot that you've been able to hang here with us. And I wanted to give a big thanks to Matt for being able to carve out the time and get this episode recorded and in the back. I mentioned at the top of the episode, this one is sponsored by NLP Logics. Here at Emerge, we work with AI services and AI product companies around the world who are looking to expand their reach and be able to get in front of the right kind of folks that might be interested in what they do, whether it's sponsored podcasts and articles to co-branded research and lead generation and more. You can learn more about Emerge Media at emerj.com slash ad1. It's ad like advertise and then the number one. Again, Emerge Media is our branch of the business dedicated to servicing the vendor ecosystem. We obviously still have our research, but when it comes to what we do for services firms, emerge.com slash ad1. That's ad like advertise and then the number one is where you can learn a bit more there. You can download our full media kit there, which includes a whole number of examples of actual campaign content with a variety of vendors, companies as big as IBM and as small as little startups you've never heard of out in Israel. So again, emerj.com slash 81. That's all for this episode. Look forward to catching you in the next one here on the AI and Business Podcast.